Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson, CEO of Peak Prosperity here and author of The Crash Course. I'm here with another episode of The Crash Course. You're not going to want to miss this one. I'm calling this one the green energy myth. It's a dangerous myth. If we get it wrong, what happens? Well, it's not just that we waste little money. It's that we risk destroying our future prosperity as a species, and we risk depopulating the planet. Hyperbole or not, you deserve to know. Let's go there and take a look at this. I think it's a fatal green energy myth. We are telling ourselves a series of lies about this and self-delusions, which are not helpful. We should have complete honesty, and we should be led by people who are competent in this regard, and that's where we're getting into a little bit of trouble these days. So what am I talking about? First up, uh, this dates this episode a little bit, but just recently here in December of 2023, a bunch of people got together, 200 countries, at something called the COP28, the climate negotiations in Dubai, and they came to some agreements. First, the outcome of COP28 has secured the 1.5 degree Celsius goal as the North Star to collective climate ambition. Second, for the first time, nations have formally agreed to transition away from fossil fuels in a just and equitable manner by the year 2050. Can that be done? Can it be done at all, let alone justly and equitably? Let's find out. Is a grounding, let's remember there is no such thing as a low energy rich country. So what they're saying in the green energy climate change debate is they're saying, look, we're going to get away from the energy that has given us all of our prosperity, all of our GDP, all of our comfortable lives, and we're going to get this by other means. But let's remember, there is no such thing as a low energy rich country. What is this chart saying? Well, up the left axis there, the y-axis, looking at the total amount of energy consumption per person here, um, primary energy consumption. And then we're also looking across the bottom, GDP per capita, per person. And what you find out is that nice straight relationship there. You get sort of a line that, that scoots up nice and straight. Yeah, it curves a little. But generally speaking, you cannot find any countries that have a high GDP. So they're way out on the edge of this thing here, right? They're way out that way. Yeah, finally got my finger going the right way. Yeah, there's no such thing as a high GDP, low energy country. Okay, so energy is kind of important. Now, here's what those targets translate into. So if we wanted to take global CO2 emissions to limit warming to just 1.5 degrees, this is the implication. You can see CO2 has been going up and up and up. That's in gigatons. So we're up at about 40 some odd gigatons of carbon dioxide emissions by human activity starting in 1900. 2023, there you are in the red. In order to meet this target, that slope, that's what that looks like. That's what the 1.5 degree target means. That's why this is so important when they say, ah, oh, you know what, we've decided one and a half degrees. That is our magic line in the sand. What that means is a very, very radical reduction in carbon dioxide output, okay? So if we did that, if we took ourselves down to say, oh, by 2040, we got down to say that 80% reduction right there, we're, at, we're down at whatever that is, seven gigatons. That takes us back to basically the same living standard conditions we had in around 1920. The difference is we've got about four times as many people as back then. It's a big deal. So 
let's look at what that actually means and let's decode this a little bit. Now, I think I understand energy maybe better than most people, not just because I have a lot of science in my background, but because part of my science, when I was a graduate student in my postdoctoral work, I worked with neural cells. That's what you're looking at here is a plate of fluorescently tagged neuronal cells growing in culture. And they're beautiful. The big blobs in the center of the cell bodies. And then these neurons express out axons and dendrites and they make synaptic connections, thousands and thousands of them, and they're talking to each other. It's super complicated. Uh, but you know what? Graduate students aren't the most reliable people, particularly, say, uh, after a long weekend. And sometimes you forget to feed your cells. And you know what happens? They get simpler. Without the glucose that nerves need, nerve, neuron cells need to sustain their metabolism, without that primary source of energy, they get simpler. With energy, they have lots and lots of complexity in their lives. And without energy, they have less complexity. With energy, lots of complexity. Take the energy away, things get uninteresting and boring and blobby and small and greatly simplified. So this is why I do what I do. I talk about the three E's all the time because we can't talk about the economy, which is a rich, axonal, dendritic expression of many, many things. Our economy is this really beautiful symphony of needs and wants being expressed across the entire globe. It's massively complicated and complex in how all those millions and billions of activities and decisions go into delivering anything in your life. Like, where did these reading glasses come from? How many components? There's some plastics. There's some metal in here. There's little screws. There's so many elements of human activity in every single thing that we would call a unit of economic activity. So we care about that. So we can't talk about the economy without talking about energy, because remember, there is no such thing as a low energy, rich country or economically advanced country, because that's when we say rich country, we're really saying you have a high functioning, well-oiled uh -huh, economy. So economy and energy are clearly intimately linked. And of course, you have to think about the 30 too, which is the environment, it's the ecology, it's what are we doing to the planet in terms of, I don't know, taking too many fish out of the ocean or converting beautiful soils into lifeless dirt uh, as, as part of our farming practices, taking out aquifers, which recharge over tens of thousands of years and just pumping it up and growing alfalfa with it that gets shipped to Saudi Arabia, right? These are the kinds of things that we have to understand how all three of these E's relate with each other, and they do, and they do. And that's the service I bring, is bringing these two pieces together. And in particular, I like to connect economy and energy. It can't be done often enough. I think more people need a grounding in it. And once you do that, once you put on your energy goggles, once you begin to see the world, not through the economic lens, but through the energy lens, you can still see the economy, but you see it differently, not unlike... Neo finally able to see the matrix in the green code when he's in that hallway in that final scene and sees those three agents down there. Once you put on your energy goggles, you will be able to see the world in a whole new way. Now, if you want to know more about this and you like to go in depth and that's the kind of person you are and you want to be able to predict the future, you're going to want to get this book and read it. And that's the one behind me on the shelf there. Now, no energy means no economy. It's not the other way around. So uh, this is just a scene from that Will Smith movie, um, I Am Legend, right? And, and so the whole economy is crashed. That's what a, an economy without any energy would actually look like, though, in this case, because all the people are dead. But um, it would look like that. All the cars would be parked. They wouldn't go anywhere. Our cities would look like this at night. They wouldn't be all lit up in these beautiful scapes. You know, I guess all we could say is 
well, you, the stars would come back. Um, but that's what no energy cities look like. And in my earlier chapter on energy, I teach you how to put on the energy goggles. You should watch that. So I won't cover all of that. But let me just say this. Energy is the master resource. With energy, everything else is possible. With less energy, less is possible. With no energy, nothing is possible. All right, so here's the stories. I, can, I told you there's myths involved. There's, these are narratives that happen to be false. Um, so here, if all of this were true, let's look at this. So this is an article from January 30th of 2023. It says, replacing U.S. coal plants with solar and wind is cheaper than running them, them being the coal plants. So they say right here, it now it's now it now unequivocally, unequivocally, no question, it unequivocally costs less to build new renewable energy projects than to operate existing existing coal plants. So not even like you have like head to head, we're going to build a coal plant, we're going to build some alternative energy, something or other. It's now cheaper to build the new alternative energy than to just keep the coal plant running. That is a huge advantage. It's enormous. How about this? In the conversation, they said renewables are cheaper than ever, yet fossil fuel use is still growing. Well, that's a little puzzling, a little odd. How about this? In Forbes, 99% of U.S. coal plants are more expensive than new renewables, repeating the same sort of idea we had before. This coming to us in, again in January of 23. How about this in CBS News? Solar and wind generated more electricity than coal for a record five months so it sounds like wow this stuff is really penetrating it's just like here it is it's arrived we're good to go um if all of this were true you know when they say uh well why did renewables become so cheap so fast in most places power from new renewables is now cheaper than new fossil fuels uh clean technica most renewables now cheaper than the cheapest coal uh, arena talking about majority of new renewables undercut cheapest fossil fuel on cost i could go on and on and on these things are just everywhere you can't shake a lazy stick without running into a headline that says wind and solar is now cheaper than oil and gas okay now what now, now we just have to decide so if all of this were true if all of those headlines were true then well this is a little odd here uh that we have headlines like this coming out in september of 23 the headline is wind power industry drifts off course. But notice down here from the article, it says, but so far this year, projects off Britain, the Netherlands and Norway have been delayed or shelved due to rising costs and supply chain constraints. While Britain's renewable energy auction this month failed to attract any bids. Well, wait a minute. If this stuff is so spectacularly good and cheaper than coal or gas, how do you get a headline like this? It's just a no-brainer, right? You'd just be slapping these things up as fast as you could and undercutting your competition because that's how this is supposed to work. What about this? Ooh, a Chilean wind farm operator filed for bankruptcy. That's odd. French offshore wind developer, French, files for bankruptcy. Uh, Norway's Orsted hit by 5.6 billion impairment on halted U.S. offshore wind projects. Uh, wind companies losing billions now, prompting fears a federal bailout could be coming. That's weird. Uh, they say here, quote, the federal government has been pouring billions into projects to meet environmental goals, only to have the companies go bankrupt. In 2009, the Obama administration co-signed $535 million in loans to solar panel manufacturing startup Solyndra, 
Two years later, the company went bankrupt, laying off 1,100 workers. Uh, another solar manufacturing startup, Abound Solar, received $400 million from the government. Uh, and in 2012, it, it filed for bankruptcy. Well, now that's weird, right? It's almost like there's a pattern going on here. So how, how are we supposed to make sense of this? On the one hand, solar and wind are cheaper, inarguably. What, what, did, what did they say? It, it's just, um, yeah, just inescapably true that these things are cheaper than coal or other fossil fuels. But I don't hear about coal-fired plants going out of business. I don't hear about them getting, you know, huge subsidies and still running out of business and going bankrupt. I hear about solar and wind companies going bankrupt all the time. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, where they are in this. If you're an operator, you're going bankrupt. Now, why is that? Um, it's, you know, it's just very, just an odd thing. Maybe they're just poorly run companies, all of them, possible. But here's the rule. If you actually have a cheaper source of energy than some other energy source that's already out there, you will win. The market will beat a path to your door. So the headlines in reality aren't squaring up. You don't have to be a green energy expert. You don't have to be some super deep engineering electrical sort of a guy or gal to understand what I'm talking about here. If the headlines were true, we wouldn't be seeing all these bankruptcies. That's a simple connection we can make. All right, so carrying on here, let's take a look now. Um, here's the reality. So this is primary energy consumption by source. And you can see there that that's coal, oil, and gas are, are the gray, the blue, the purple, the big smear, big parts. And those little smears up top, you can see solar and wind, eh, you know, hydropower is that light or blue thing, but they're just these little, little tiny pieces. And so the reality is that 80 plus percent of all our primary energy worldwide still comes from fossil fuels. This is what they say are they're going to drive down to zero by 2050, which by the way, kids, is just around the corner. It's just 25 years from, well, 26 years from now. So look at this, solar's contribution. So this is the same chart, but I've, I've grayed out every other color and just left the solar smear on top. You can see that those contributions are currently minuscule, but we're told that they're about to become ready for prime time. How about wind? There's wind. Okay, slightly above minuscule. Same point though. Neither of these technologies are yet ready for prime time in taking over from fossil fuels. And here's why they face four problems. We're going to go through them very quickly here. Problem one, intermittency. Sometimes it's dark out. That's called nighttime. Sometimes it's cloudy out. Solar panels really don't perform well under cloudy conditions. Sometimes it's calm out and the wind turbines don't turn. Here's a headline that just came to us in November of 23. Alberta's 44 wind farms operated at 0.3% capacity on Wednesday. That's effectively zero. Nothing happened. So they have all these, uh, they have 44 wind farms. They are geared up. They could produce many, many gigawatts of power, and they produced effectively zero on this one night. Okay, it's just one night, but you're going to have to store that if you don't want to be subject to this because we can't have an intermittent energy system. It can't be that sometimes you flick the switch, your lights don't come on. That's annoying, but you can't have your refrigerator turning off for whole blocks or your freezer turning off because the wind isn't blowing. But if you are in a hospital setting, you absolutely can't have respirators turning off and dialysis machines stopping mid-cycle. And if you're a factory, you can't have your arc furnace suddenly turning off. So you have to buffer this somehow. So what do you do? Well, you build a lot of these wind farms all over the place because hopefully the wind's blowing somewhere and you can now pipe it somewhere. But 
by piping it, I mean we're going to need cables, big fat electrical cables, a lot of copper in that possibly, and as well we're going to need batteries. Now, here's the problem with that story. Professor Simon Michaud, who I interviewed on this program a while ago on Peak Prosperity, he added it up. He actually did the math, and he did the math, and he said, hey, how much, what's the quantity of metals required to phase out fossil fuels, right? So this is building a whole wide variety of things, wind towers, solar towers, more hydropower. We have to get rid of our internal combustion engine cars and vehicles and go to electric engine and battery types of cars. We're going to put in nuclear, all kinds of things, right? And we, and we want a 48-hour buffer just in case the wind doesn't blow one Wednesday night. So a 48-hour buffer, is that enough? I don't think so. But under these conditions, he added up a few columns here. First, total amount of copper, say, that would be needed by different metals in that first column there on the left. Total that would be required to get to a 48-hour plus a 10% buffer. Uh, global metal production is the next column, how many millions of tons were actually produced that year. And then you just divide that first, second column there by that third column, and you, or fourth, if you look at it, third divided by fourth. And then you get an answer, which is years to produce metal at 2019 rates of production, assuming a 48-hour battery backup and a 10% buffer. And the answer is, is that we would have to mine copper for 28.8 years to get enough to do this project. Okay, it's a little tight to get us to 2050. And by the way, 100% of our copper has to go towards this project. It doesn't go towards anything else, but ah, we're going to need nickel. How much, how long would that take? Oh gosh, it would take 73.9 years to get enough nickel. What about lithium? Because we're going to use lithium batteries for all the cool cars and the battery backups, right? Ooh, now we have to spend 1,248.4 years at current rates of mining to get the amount of lithium we'd need, 253 years to get the cobalt, 400 plus years for the graphite that we need, uh, 756 years to get the vanadium we need, 32,024 years to get the germanium, oops, ouch, and then the rare earth elements would be anywhere from a couple dozen to well over 150 years. Uh, obviously, folks, this isn't going to happen. We don't have 150 years in the story. We don't have 32,000 years. We don't even have really more than five years to really get our arms around this. And that's not because of climate change. That's because of where we are in the oil story. Now, I've got a big part to this, which will come out in part two. I'm always looking at the oil story. People who don't understand the oil story are going to get blindsided. So back at Peak Prosperity for my subscribers. We'll be talking about that in a lot more detail. So if you're a detail sort of person, you're not going to want to miss that. Now, that's problem two is that resource availability. So problem one, intermittency. Problem two, we don't even have the resources we need to help address the intermittency issue. So it's a thing we would have to sort out and begin to solve, but it's not an insignificant challenge. But there's more. The next is just energy density. It takes a huge swath of land in both wind and solar to accomplish the same amount of power output that we're getting from fairly small fossil fuel plants. So, hey, this might look like a good thing to you. You say, wow, look at all those solar panels. Somebody else might say, mm, that used to be productive farmland. This isn't such a great thing uh, after all, but it's an issue. And by the way, think about it. Maybe this is in the desert. Think about a dust storm in the desert. They happen. 
Think about having to wash all of those off. How would you do that? Where does the water come from in a desert in region to do that? Uh, is there a way to automate this? Is that sand going to scratch the surface of these glass panels over time and degrade them? These are all actual issues that need to be sorted out. Another one might be that that scale just makes them a bigger target. This is an unfortunate uh, hailstorm in Nebraska this past year that just just took out that entire uh, bank of panels there. I don't even, what's that, look like a five megawatt array or something? Pretty big. Um, so uh, there's issues there. Another problem, problem four, all the other things that oil and natural gas do for us, by the way, and there's quite a lot, it's not just that we get, you know, uh, crude oil turns into liquefied petroleum jet fuel and, and diesel fuel and gasoline, and we can just, that's it. In fact, there's a much, much larger story here. There are over 2,000 separate feedstock inputs to chemical processes that give us things like asphalt. We need asphalt. If you want roads, you need asphalt. We don't have anything nearly as good as asphalt that operates as well as it does under a variety of conditions, temperatures, dry or wet, and provides stopping power, is not brittle under certain conditions, all of that. It's, a, it's really a magic substance for making roads out of. So if you want roads to have your electric cars on, you're still going to be using asphalt coming out of a barrel of oil. But as well, there's, like I said, there's thousands of other things, pharmaceutical products, plastics, resins, glues, you name it. Um, so even if we could replace 100% of the power we get from a barrel of oil, we still need about 20, 30% of that barrel of oil for other, other purposes. So electrons are fun and sexy coming out of a wind tower or out of a solar panel, but those electrons won't replace any of those things I just talked about. These are chemical feedstock inputs, and that's a big deal. So adding this all up, if we look at this, uh, the alternative or green energy uh, story, look, they're not even close to ready to take center stage on this. They're great. I have solar on our house. I think we should put up wind, wind turbines, but the idea that somehow... That is the same thing as then only using those things for the center mass of running our complex, industrialized, modern lifestyles. It just doesn't work. It's just it just doesn't add up yet. There are things we can do. There's a great story. Excuse me. A great story we could tell about nuclear and small modular nuclear reactors, particularly molten salt reactors. I think there's an incredible future there. But first, we're going to have to drop the green energy delusion. First, we're going to have to also in parallel, dual first in this, we're going to have to understand the actual scale and scope of the problem at hand, how big of a challenge this is. This isn't something you just decide to do, and it happens. If the energy sources are more diffuse, more dilute, uh, and actually, on balance, aren't cheaper than fossil fuels, waiting for market forces to deliver you to nirvana is waiting for Godot. It's a forever wait. It's always a manana thing. It will never arrive. Why? Because markets don't deliver substandard, more expensive things when an alternative is better and cheaper. It's just not how markets work. We might decide we want to deliver more, but we're going to have to put some effort into that. And we are not doing that yet in the West at scale. Now, this is really primarily a West story I'm telling you because it's primarily the West which is Europe, U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, we're telling ourselves a story about what green energy can and should be able to do for us, but it's just a story. It's not well-grounded. We don't have adults in charge right now who can actually do basic math like Simon Michaud did to add that up. 
Second, green energy has enormous problems to solve first. It's questionable to me at this stage if they even can be solved, which means they're not problems, they're predicaments. If there's not enough lithium and there's no better battery chemistry out there, that's a predicament. You are never going to be able to solve that by reconfiguring your battery a little bit differently. And finally, thus, uh, the conclusion I have here is the West collective focus on green energy. It's a dangerous delusion and it will destroy prosperity at best, but at worst, it's going to be a massive depopulation event. That's because we eat oil, we eat fossil fuels, we use it for everything from plowing the fields to uh, putting fertilizers on and where those fertilizers even came from and distributing, harvesting, packaging, cooling, cooking. All of those steps require energy. Energy is the master resource. The extent to which we are telling ourselves that we're just going to somehow magically move to this alternative energy environment without having any real concrete plan for that is dangerously diluted and it's going to lead to all sorts of high-end risks not least of which is i do believe that we're going to have to understand what the risks here are what the opportunities are and of course you can tell the future when you understand what the trajectories of these particular stories are i do think there's risks i think there's opportunities i think that people who can see this clearly have a strong leg up on those who don't this is for uh, members back at Peak Prosperity. If you are a member, just click on through and you're not going to want to miss this particular episode because I do think there's a lot here that everybody should know about. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got something out of this. If you can, please share this with somebody you think needs to know about it because sharing is caring and that is the most potent way to get information from one place to another. Thank you very much and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.